This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. One of the most highly anticipated investigative reports of the year coming next week. Could criminal prosecutions soon follow? The lead starts right now. The January 6th committee putting the last touches on its final report, what we're learning about the eight chapters to be released next week, and the vote on possible criminal referrals that could come along with it. We're going to speak with a member of the January 6th committee in just a few minutes. Plus, judgment day for a Capitol rioter, the prison sentence for the remorseless insurrectionist who chased U.S. Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman through the Senate chamber and see the aftermath when that 264,000-gallon cylinder aquarium filled with exotic fish exploded. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead. Crunch time for the January 6th committee. Members have just a few days left to complete their final report, much of which is expected to be released on Monday. That is when we expect to learn how many people, if any, The committee will criminally refer to the U.S. Department of Justice and whether that will include Donald Trump and what those charges against him might be. Today, we also learned federal investigators have accessed the emails of multiple close Trump allies who tried to overturn the 2020 election results. Court documents show the list includes Republican Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, Attorney John Eastman and former Justice Department officials Jeffrey Clark and Ken Kukowski. Ken Klukowski. As CNN's Sarah Murray reports for us now, the filings are giving us some new insights into the federal investigation into the efforts of Trump and his minions to overthrow democracy. The January 6th committee working down to the wire. I've spent countless hours along with the other committee members going through the report and the appendixes. Uh, looking at the footnotes, editing. Members huddling behind closed doors to put the finishing touches on the final report they plan to unveil next week. Chairman Benny Thompson saying the committee will lay out its top-line findings in Monday's public meeting, with plans to share an executive summary of the panel's sprawling investigation, and perhaps even the bulk of the report, if it's finished in time. We have made decisions that criminal referrals will happen. The committee also planning to reveal who they think should be held accountable, with referrals for possible state bar discipline, referrals for possible campaign finance violation, referrals to the House Ethics Committee, and referrals to the Department of Justice for possible criminal prosecution. We want to make sure no one slips through the cracks. We want to make sure that the the key organizers and movers of this attack don't escape the scrutiny of the justice system. Lawmakers especially focused in their hearings and public appearances on Donald Trump's potential culpability. I think he's guilty of a crime. He knew what he did. We've made that clear. He knew what was happening prior to January 6th. While the referrals will lay a marker for posterity. Where I think this work is going to actually echo the loudest, though, is not even necessarily tomorrow, not even if the Justice Department does. It's going to echo through the history book. 
Trump is already facing scrutiny from the Justice Department in its probe into the attack on the U.S. Capitol and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Some of his top allies in the scheme, lawyers Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and former DOJ official Jeffrey Clark, all face investigations from state bars. Hey, Mr. Clark. Yes. Clark's home also searched. Can I put pants on first? Sir, sure. we've got to clear the house. As he faces DOJ scrutiny as well. An unsealed court filing this week revealing federal investigators have accessed emails between Clark and Representative Scott Perry, who refused to talk to the January 6th committee. Now, I think we certainly are all expecting to see Donald Trump's name atop the list of criminal referrals. But, of course, we'll wait to see Jake until they get through this public meeting on Monday. And, again, you know, you can see by all of this, a lot of the folks that they have been scrutinizing are already facing some kind of legal jeopardy or some kind of jeopardy when it comes to their profession. A lot of this is symbolic, but it's important for the committee, they believe, and for the historical record to make these referrals public. All right, Sarah Murray, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Today, the insurrectionist who chased U.S. Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman, through the Capitol on January 6th, was sentenced to five years in prison. Officer Goodman saved lives, letting the mob chase him, steering them away from members of the Senate. And the mob followed him for nearly 30 minutes through the Senate chamber. Prosecutors say Douglas Jensen scaled a 20-foot wall to break into the Capitol that day and demanded police arrest then-Vice President Mike Pence. Defense attorney said Jensen followed QAnon and believed a storm had arrived and corrupt politicians would be arrested. Jensen did not apologize in court for his actions. Instead, he said he couldn't change the past and wanted to go back to being a family man. After his time in prison, Jensen must serve three more years of supervised release and pay $2,000 in restitution for damage to the U.S. Capitol. Joining me now to discuss, Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, who's on the January 6th uh, committee. So, Congresswoman, Uh, We know you and the committee are going to vote on specific possible criminal referrals on Monday. Uh, Just moments ago, Politico reported that those votes uh, include referring Donald Trump himself to the Justice Department on at least three charges, uh, those being insurrection, obstruction of an official proceeding, and conspiracy to defraud the U.S. government. Is, Is that reporting accurate? Well, I'm not going to get into that, Jake, and let me tell you why. We spent a huge amount of time, not just on what what the code sections are and the bottom line recommendation, but the facts. And I think it's really important when we discuss whatever it is we're going to do, and we'll have a vote on it, that people understand the facts behind the conclusions we reach. And so uh, you're going to have to wait uh, till our meeting, but we have uh, we've been very, very careful in crafting these recommendations and tethering them to the facts that we've uncovered. Assuming that you do vote to refer some of these individuals for criminal prosecution to the Justice Department, if Merrick Garland, or I suppose it's the special counsel, ultimately decide not to prosecute Trump or or Clark or anyone else that you may refer, would you consider your actions and all your time spent on this committee to have been a waste of time? Not at all. And the Justice Department has to make their best judgment on what to charge and whether they believe that they can prove a charge beyond a reasonable doubt. But it's very clear that our committee uncovered a wide-ranging plot uh, to overturn the election, to essentially overturn the Constitution. That began well before uh, the election itself. Uh, I think the public did not know 
about all of this, frankly, before our investigation. I didn't know about it. And so I think it's important that we've laid it out. And I think the public understands the threat to our democracy. I hear that all the time. People come up to me talking to me about what we found. So that's uh, our job was to investigate, lay out the facts, and then we'll make also legislative recommendations that might keep our country safer in the future. There are two Republicans on your nine-member committee. I want to play something that one of them, Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, told me uh, earlier this week about his view of whether or not Donald Trump committed a crime related to January 6th. Take a listen. If he is not guilty of some kind of a crime, I mean, what we've basically said is presidents are above the law and they can do everything short of a coup as long as it doesn't succeed. Do you agree with that sentiment? Well, you know, Judge Carter in California already said in his written opinion on the uh, the Eastman evidence issue that it's more likely than not that President uh, Trump, as well as Mr. Dr. Eastman, committed a crime. So uh, that's not a new thing. Uh, we've worked very successfully as a team on the committee, Republicans and Democrats together. And I'm looking forward to wrapping this up um, soon. We're working throughout the weekend, actually, on some of the, the tag ends of what uh, we're finishing up. So it's been a tremendous experience. Um, one, I mean, something I never expected to be in, in all honesty. Uh, the chairman of the co- committee, uh, Benny Thompson, uh, says he also expects that the committee is going to release the executive summary and eight chapters of your final report uh, during Monday's meeting. Can you give us an idea of what that might include? Well, the, it, you know, we've gone in more in greater detail uh, over what happened. Really, we laid out the basic facts in our hearings. Uh, there are additional facts. And importantly, we will be releasing additional evidence uh, through our footnotes to what we are uh, uh, talking about in the report. There's a large volume of just raw evidence, the committee records, that were not possible to release during the hearings. And I think the public, as well as the press, will find that of a tremendous interest because um, there are, you know, there's some pretty bad things we discovered. Today, we learned that federal investigators have uh, accessed emails between former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark and Republican Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. Perry refused to talk to your committee. What do you make of this new development? Well, uh, when they uh, executed the warrant on Mr. Perry's phone, I presumed that they would get information that the the, uh, committee was not able to get. Uh, You know, the Department of Justice has tools that we don't have. And so I'm glad that they're not just letting it go. Obviously, we were unable to get the testimony of the members of Congress or uh, the evidence that they possess. That's one of the things we'll be uh, discussing and talking about uh, later in the business meeting, what to do about that. What, um, what was your response when you heard Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia uh, over the weekend last weekend saying that if she and Steve Bannon had been in charge of January 6th, uh, they would have won uh, and also they would have been armed? Uh, she later said she was, uh, she was joking around, but uh, I, we interviewed uh, Sergeant Gunnell yesterday and he didn't find it particularly amusing. Well, I don't think it's amusing either. First, we apparently, she identifies with uh, 
an armed mob that tried to overthrow the uh, the government. Uh, winning, I guess that's overthrowing the government. And better armed, there were people with assault weapons and other arms in that crowd. I don't know how, what, machine guns? What does she have in mind? So, you know, if it's a joke, it's not much of a joke. People died uh, during that uh, that assault on the Capitol. I don't find it too amusing. Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, thank you so much. Uh, and good luck as you prepare for this final uh, final meeting. Okay, thanks very much, Jake. Next, no turning back. See the operation already in progress at the border to handle the influx of migrants determined to come and stay in the U.S. And we have less than three weeks until the next Congress is sworn in. The laundry list the current Congress hopes to accomplish and what might be forced to go by the wayside. Plus, tourists stuck as protests throw yet another country into chaos. And CNN learns Americans are among those stranded. Stay with us. Internationally, you're looking at two scenes at the U.S.-Mexico border, just a few miles apart on the left in Juarez, Mexico. Migrant families are crossing the Rio Grande River, some risking everything for a shot at more opportunity in the United States. On the right, migrants who already made it uh, camping out on the streets of El Paso with shelters in that city already at full capacity. And as CNN's Ed Lavendera reports, many of these migrants are awaiting the expected end of Title 42, That's the Trump pandemic-era border policy that allowed the U.S. government to turn away around 2.5 million asylum seekers. It's 39 degrees and getting colder. This is Roberto Cordoba's first night sleeping on the El Paso streets. He says he's never experienced anything close to homelessness. He left Cuba last month and is hoping to get to Miami soon. He says this is the first time in his life he's ever had to spend the night on the street and he feels completely lost. A thin pair of New York giant socks and unlaced shoes won't be enough to get through the frigid night. Everything that he's wearing now, um, the jackets and the, the heavy clothing, he's donated people who have dropped it off here. Roberto hopes there's something else to keep him warm in the back of Sandra Grace Martinez's car. For days, she's handed out donated goods. They're on survival mode. It's fight or flight for them. The long lines of migrants waiting to get escorted into the U.S. by Border Patrol agents has significantly dwindled on the Mexican side of the border a sign that perhaps this latest migration surge has slowed down for now. With the Title 42 public health rules set to expire next week, officials in El Paso plan to bring in more buses to move migrants out of the city faster. The order allows for the swift expulsion of migrants at the border. Whether it's Dallas or Denver or Phoenix or whatever that next large airport or bus terminal is, it's to move them onto those locations. El Paso emergency management outreach teams are helping migrants find shelter space at night. But Albert Robles and his wife have been sleeping on the street, buried under blankets since Monday night. Their bus ticket to Connecticut isn't good until this weekend. He said the first night that he was sleeping on the street, it was drizzly and cold. It was almost like a fatal feeling. Uh, But he thought, you know, he's been dreaming of this moment for so long that there was no way he was going to turn back. 
So, Jake, in all of this, it's a humanitarian logistical challenge. Uh, city leaders talking about busing migrants to cities like Phoenix, Denver, Dallas to get them to larger transportation hubs. And here on the streets, trash cans and sanitation needs for all of the people that are out here right now. Jake? A humanitarian crisis at the border at Lavendera in El Paso. Thank you so much. We have some breaking news for you now. A source confirms that January, the January 6th committee is considering referring Donald Trump to the Justice Department on at least two charges, as first reported by Politico. They include obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the federal government. CNN's Sarah Murray is here. And Sarah, tell us more uh, about these specific two charges. Well, look, we know that there are at least two now that are under consideration. There could be more than that. You know, these are interesting because what we have seen is when the House has gone to court battling for evidence as part of their probe, we saw a judge essentially agree that there could be evidence that the former president violated the law when it comes to these charges. So it makes sense that this is where the House committee would go. You know, we've seen in their other public comments and in their other public hearings them referring to what judges have said about the former president's conduct. So it does make sense that this is where they would lean in. I mean, I think the question is, what would these referrals mean? You know, we know that there already is a robust Justice Department investigation surrounding the former president, surrounding many of his allies when it comes to the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. But Jake, as we've been talking about, the committee does believe that they found evidence of a crime and they don't, they've, you know, sort of felt like while they may not be in the business of prosecuting crimes, they can't just sit on their hands and not make that public and not make these sorts of referrals. All right, let's bring in Ellie Honig, CNN senior legal analyst. Ellie, tell me about the significance of these referrals if ultimately the committee votes to refer Donald Trump on these charges. Remember, we're just saying that the Sarah's reporting that these are two charges that the committee is going to vote on whether or not to refer Donald Trump on. Let's assume that they do. Tell us about these referrals. So, Jake, there's no legally binding impact to these referrals. Prosecutors can and do take referrals all the time from all manner of sources. It doesn't require DOJ to do anything. DOJ does not need a referral in order to do anything. However, this would still be enormously significant if the committee decides to make this referral. We would have a bipartisan committee of Congress essentially saying to the DOJ, we have done our work. We know this committee has uncovered all manner of evidence over the past year and a half. And we believe it matches up with these crimes. And by the way, I don't think it's at all a coincidence that the two crimes that Sarah's reporting are under consideration are the same two crimes that DOJ has already gone in front of a judge and said, we believe there's at least probable cause, not necessarily enough to bring an indictment, but enough that we could get certain investigative materials. And the judge agreed. So I think the committee here is trying to sing off the same play sheet as a DOJ. That's the Judge Carter case having to do with, I guess it was a John Eastman's emails. Am I, am I getting that right? Exactly. So DOJ wanted to get access to those emails. Uh, John Eastman and others argued, well, they're, a tech, we're, they're protected by attorney-client privilege. DOJ countered and said, yes, but there's evidence in those emails of an ongoing crime. It's what's called the crime fraud exception. And the judge said, DOJ's right. We think that those emails are evidence of at least one ongoing crime, including the two crimes Sarah just reported the committee is considering, which is a conspiracy to defraud the United States and an obstruction of Congress, meaning trying to obstruct the counting of electoral votes in, co- in Congress. So assuming that the committee votes uh, to refer these two charges uh, regarding Donald Trump to the Justice Department. Does it go to the newly appointed special counsel or does it go to Merrick Garland, the attorney general? And what do you think the odds are that either man or whoever the right person is would actually 
take up these charges and try to prosecute a former president, Donald Trump. So it goes to the whole world, Jake. It becomes really public. I suppose there's some parts of it that the committee could could convey over to prosecutors under seal or confidentially. I think in the first instance, you would send it to Jack Smith, to the special counsel. He's now the one who's tasked with running this operation, this investigation on a day-to-day basis. It's important that people understand Jack Smith is going to have the first say as to whether there should be an indictment or not. But under the special counsel regulations, that then has to go to the attorney general, Merrick Garland. He has to now give great weight to whatever Jack Smith says. But ultimately, Merrick Garland has to sign off or not. Uh, Whether they're going to charge or not. Well, look, we know the committee has provided a solid foundation of evidence. We can't know everything they have. We'll certainly know more next week. But in my view, based on my time as a prosecutor, I think there is a rock solid foundation here for prosecutors to move on. All right, Ellie Honig, thanks so much. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're back with our politics lead. Members of Congress have given themselves a one-week extension to try to avoid a government shutdown, but that's far from the only thing left to do in their final days. CNN Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, there's a lot on the to-do list. Walk us through it, and does Congress have enough time to do it? Yeah, that is really the big question. At this moment, they are still negotiating a full-year funding bill to fund the entire federal government, even though the deadline was nearly three months ago, September 30th. But now they have a new deadline next Friday to get that done. And if they don't release bill tax, actual legislation that details by Monday, it could make things very difficult to get it done by the end of the week. And there is a lot riding on the table. Roughly $1.64 trillion in funding across the federal government, $30 $37 billion in funding for Ukraine. We also expect changes to the Electoral Count Act to make it harder to do another January 6th the way Donald Trump wanted to be done while the joint session of Congress certified the presidential results. But there are also other key outstanding issues. What does the House Ways and Means Committee do with Donald Trump's tax returns? They will meet privately on Tuesday to decide next steps. It's uncertain what Democrats who are only in power for another couple of weeks in the House, what they will do with that. And then next Congress, such major fiscal issues ahead. How do they deal with raising the national debt limit? Something they decided not to do in the lame duck session of this Congress, funding the government, another big issue. And then the all key important question, who will win the speaker's race come January 3rd? A big question looming over Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, let's talk about that because today McCarthy spoke about his challenge to become the next House speaker. I don't think he has secured the 218 votes. What did he have to say? Yeah, he acknowledged that. In fact, he said that there are five members who have, quote, not moved in their opposition to his speakership. That is further than he has gone before. And if he has more than four Republican no votes, he does not have the 218 votes to become speaker. And he ratcheted up public pressure on those five members, saying if they do not budge, then their GOP majority, their agenda could be imperiled. He said the Democrats will win. And he said things that they want to do at the beginning of the Congress will be slow. There'll be a slow start. He warned that perhaps they will not even be able to retain the majority if this drags on. So this is all part of the escalation, trying to get them to bend. He has met with them, heard their concerns. They've demanded certain rules changes to give them more power over the speakership. They've made a little bit of headway, but the conservative hardliners want more. So the big question is, Jake, from now until January 3rd, can Kevin McCarthy win over at least one of those members to get the 218 votes? Because right now, he doesn't have those votes. But Manu, wasn't it just a couple days ago that you asked him, you said, Congressman Matt Gates, who's one of the five votes against him, says you don't have the votes. And he said he did have the votes. And you said, Gates says you don't. And he said, 
well, who do you believe, me or Gates? It, yes. Did I did I invent that, or did that not happen? That is absolutely correct. He said, "Who do you believe, me or Matt Gates?" And Matt Gates has said over and over again, he does not have 218 votes, and appears at the moment Matt Gates is right. And but McCarthy is acknowledging that today. Yeah, today he said those five members have not moved. All right, so I guess we have the answer to the question: Who do you believe, <laughs> you, you, me, or Matt Gates? I guess now we know the answer is Matt Gates. Manu Raju, right. thanks so much, appreciate it. Thank Republican you. Governor Chris Sununu just won a fourth term as New Hampshire's leader, and in a new interview with CNN's Dana Bash, he's making it clear his vision for the future of the Republican Party is not one that includes Donald Trump. But Sununu did suggest someone whom he thought could lead the grand old party moving forward. Given what happened after the 2020 election, the conspiracies, the, the, frankly, lies that he peddled about the election, and then what happened on January 6th, is he fit to be president again? I just don't think he's going to be president again. But do you think he should be president again? No, because he's, he's done his time. He's done his service. We're moving on. We are. As a country, as a party, we want the next idea. We want the next generation, whatever it is. So to say we're going to be a country where the best opportunity for our future leadership is the leadership of yesterday, that's frankly un-American. We're just taking the next step. We're moving on. Thank you for your service. We're moving on. Thank you for a historic landslide victory. He even brought up Florida Governor Ron DeSantis unprompted as a stronger potential candidate than Trump. There's an argument to be made that someone like DeSantis could beat him in a primary today. And this do you a, think he could? That's a world. I think another candidate could. Yeah. Oh, do I think DeSantis? Maybe. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I. I really don't know. Would he be a good president? Oh, I think Ronald would be a good president. Sure. I think. I think a lot of Republican governors would be good. Do you think that he would be able to connect with voters the way you're describing? Everyone connects with voters differently. Right? I mean, I don't want to speak specifically to Ron, but I have my style. He has his style. Everyone's a little different. Every state is different. And you can watch more of Dana's interview when Being Chris Sununu airs tonight at 10 p.m. only here on CNN. Turning to our money lead, unlike the White House, Wall Street might not be so convinced that the U.S. economy can avoid a recession altogether. The Dow closed down today, 281 points. This one day after its worst finish in three months. And yet... Top economists in the United States this week have been saying this. You have said this. You do not believe there will be a recession next year. There's a risk of a recession, but um, it certainly isn't, in my view, something that is necessary to bring inflation down. I'll tell you what the projection is. I, I don't think it would qualify as a recession, though, because you've got positive growth. I want to bring in CNN business editor at large, Richard Quest. Richard, good to see you. The CEO of United Airlines suggested that all this talk about a recession could actually cause a recession, but he doesn't think otherwise one would happen. Might we be starting to see some evidence of that, talking our way into one? The so-called self-prophecy, the self-prophesizing recession. Well, we've seen it before, and yes, absolutely, it's a real risk. Scott Kirby is right. Eventually, you talk yourself into a malaise, a dizzying downward spiral, because people are frightened of what's going to happen, so they stop spending, and that causes even further downward spiral. Uh, That is a real possibility, but a greater reality 
Jake, is that a recession is more than likely. Whether it's deep, whether it's long, how whatever, but there is a consensus building that a recession is going to happen. Now, I'm aware, I'm aware that even by saying that, I am doing Scott Kirby's <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy. But there's no way round it. The fact is, the economics are not good. They're going to get more difficult in 2023. Rates are going to go higher. Inflation is going to remain elevated, to use that horrible phrase. So put it all together, could we talk our way into it? Yes. Are we probably heading for it anyway? Yes. Well, I'm going to blame it on you if it happens, Richard. Um, Americans are say, saving right now, at least with gas prices. They're down today another penny a gallon, according to AAA, down 14 cents in one week alone. Does that trend seem like it will continue, gas prices going down? Uh, yeah, it should continue if it isn't too harsh a winter, so heating oil and heating fuel and driving costs don't go up. It should continue, but the unknown here, the exogenous event, the, the, the absolute unknown, Ukraine. What happens to uh, supplies as a result of Russia's war in Ukraine? If that goes really much worse, then all bets are off. If Saudi decides not to pump as much, all bets are off. I would say the risk is on the upside, but yes, we certainly should see prices moderating further. All right, Richard Quest, always good to have you on. Thank you so much. Coming up next, tourists stranded as protests throw yet another nation into chaos. Stay with us. In our world lead, at least 20 people are dead as a result of widespread protests in Peru after the recently ousted president, Pedro Castillo, tried to dissolve the country's Congress, then was impeached and is now in jail. The country has now plunged into a sudden state of emergency. Hundreds of tourists, including Americans, are currently stranded in the ancient city of Machu Picchu. CNN's Rafael Romo is following this all. And Rafael, this needless to say, is a huge hit to the tourism industry on which Peru really uh, relies. Yeah, Jake, and it's an industry that was barely beginning to recover after the COVID-19 pandemic. The problem is not only rail lines connecting world-famous sites like Machu Picchu, the world-famous Inca Citadel, it's also multiple regional airports that have been shut down, and it's not hard to figure out why, Jake. A group of protesters tried to violently take the airport in the city of Ayacucho on Thursday. They clashed with police and at least seven people died, according to authorities. The death toll now stands at 20 after more than a week of violent protests. Authorities say there are at least 40 injured, but the figure has been steadily increasing in spite of the fact that a state of emergency was declared Wednesday and now eight regions are under curfew. Earlier today, I spoke with Michael Reiner. He's an American tourist from Washington, D.C., told me he's part of a group of eight Americans, mainly college buddies and other mutual friends who are now stuck in Peru. This is how he described their situation speaking to us from Cusco. It's surreal um, to be a tourist in a, a country where there's political unrest taking place before our eyes uh, is a whole new way of experiencing a country. The context for that for us is there's something bigger happening here than just our um, travel experience. President Dina Boluarte, who was the vice president to ousted former President Pedro Castillo, published a statement in reaction to the deadly protests in Ayacucho, where seven people died, saying that she mourns with the mothers of those who died and feels the pain 
of families throughout the country. Once again, she reiterated her call for peace. And just to give you an idea, Jake, about how popular Peru is with international tourists, including thousands of Americans, according to the latest government figures, more than half a million foreign tourists visited the country just in the first five months of this year. Jake, back to you. All right, Rafael Roma, thank you so much. Coming up next, intimidation at the extremes in Iran. Protesters sentenced to death, even public hangings. How the actions meant to silence are actually sparking protesters to raise their voices even louder. Stay with us. In our world, lead the horrors of authoritarianism on full display. The Iranian regime hanged a 23-year-old protester at dawn Thursday from a construction crane in the city of Mashhad. Sadly, this is not the first this year. There was another hanging at a prison last Thursday near Tehran. The goal, obviously, is to sow fear among the Iranian people for speaking out and protesting and demanding basic human rights. But the unintended result is demonstrators are actually making their voices even louder. Since protests erupted in September, Iran's government has killed hundreds of innocent Iranians. We turn now again to Nazanin Bonyadi, an Iranian-born actress and now activist. Welcome back. Uh, what's your response to this response to this latest crackdown, Naz? Thanks, Jake, for having me. Um, I mean, I, the international community, or human rights community, and of course, people inside Iran are outraged. Um, sadly, this is not a surprise. Um, it's how the Iranian regime operates. All it has, the only tool it has is repression. And um, but, but people inside Iran are saying, please stop calling these executions. They're state-sanctioned murders because the word execution, as abhorrent as it is, uh, implies some kind of due process. And of course, the people in Iran don't have due process. These are sham trials in kangaroo courts. These trials are lasting um, as little as a few minutes, where sometimes the prosecutor also serves as the judge. So you can imagine these people are, uh, are not, they're not receiving any kind of justice. And um, Amnesty International has recently um, issued an urgent action. There are 26 uh, protesters who are at great danger of being executed. 11 have received death sentences. And obviously with uh, the vast majority of the members of the Iranian parliament voting to kill protesters. That doesn't bode well. And, and finally, I just want to say, Jake, um, that this latest protester, Majid Reza Rahnava, there's a video right before he was hung in Mashhad, where he's surrounded by two masked guards, and he's being interviewed by a journalist from Iran State TV, asked, what is in your will? What are your what's your dying wish? And he's blindfolded, and he says, my dying wish is for people not to read the Quran or pray for me at my grave, at my funeral, but to play happy music and to celebrate. And that, I think, is very telling because the Iranian people, Iranian youth, are seeking in death what they're being denied in life. The uh, Iran, the regime of Iran, was kicked off uh, the United Nations Council on Women uh, this week, um, which has never happened before. Obviously, that's not going to stop the regime from continuing to murder it's people in the street, but do you think it will have any effect? 
I think it serves as a serious rebuke of a regime that doesn't offer any kind of normalcy or freedom to its own people. I don't see why the Islamic Republic should sit at any normal table, any diplomatic table with anyone or be included any kind of uh, normal way uh, internationally when it doesn't offer the same for it to its own people. So it's a serious rebuke. It embarrasses the regime. It um, gives credibility back to the United Nations and to uh, and, and integrity back to the Commission on the Status of Women um, because it was it was a farce that Iran was ever voted onto that body. Um, and, you know, moreover, I think it, it, it gives a little bit of hope to the people inside Iran that the international community uh, is paying attention to their plight and is, is punishing, trying to punish the Iranian regime in some kind of way. But more needs to be done. This is a great first step. But there are more serious actions that need to be taken. We need to exercise universal jurisdiction, much like Amnesty's deputy director of uh, Middle East and North Africa said that these perpetrators of human rights abuses need to be held accountable. There need to be immediate investigations and uh, arrest warrants um, issued to stop these uh, crimes against humanity from happening. Do you think all of the countries, any country that currently has a diplomatic presence, an, an embassy or whatever in Iran, should call those people back, could call their ambassadors back so as to further isolate uh, the Iranian regime? Is, is that a good next step? That's a really great question, Jake, because that's exactly what the people, the dissidents inside Iran, I'm speaking to, uh, are calling for. And keep in mind, going back to the CSW, the Commission on Status of Women, those calls were not, yes, the resolution was drafted by the U.S., but that's because they, the U.S. Uh, heeded the calls of women's rights defenders inside Iran. So all I care about is listening to what the calls are inside Iran among civil society. And yes, civil society is saying, recall your diplomats, close your embassy, expel Iranian diplomats from your countries, um, and, because that's the only language this regime understands. Um, so, so yes, I back them up 100% if that's what they're calling for. There's other things that we can do. There needs to be, we need to expel, we need to uh, sanction the Supreme Leader. We haven't done that yet. We need more Magnitsky sanctions. But we also need to sanction and um, really, I, I don't understand why the, the kids of regime officials are still living comfortably and freely in democratic countries. And then uh, dissidents like Roya Pirahi or the daughter of a woman who has been shot 167 times in the back by this regime can't find political refuge in the mm. West. So we need these these laws to change and, and, and be, support civil society in Iran and not the regime. All right. Nazanin Bonyadi, always good to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to continue covering the story, of course. Ukrainian forces Thank now you. say Thank Russia has launched at least 76 missiles on their country just today, many of those missiles targeting key infrastructure. Why Ukraine may be seeing so many in recent days, that's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, tweet, tweet, boom. Twitter suddenly suspends the accounts of several journalists, including our own Donny O'Sullivan, as Elon Musk begins to slide down the slippery slope of what starts out as content moderation and quickly can become something else. Plus, just days before they drop their final report, multiple sources tell CNN the January 6th committee is considering asking the Justice Department to pursue multiple criminal charges against... Donald Trump, what might those charges be? And leading this hour, no lights, no water, no heat. Ukraine's prime minister says that is Russia's goal after Ukraine intercepted a new barrage of strikes aimed at key infrastructure targets throughout that country. In the nation's capital of Kyiv, Ukrainians were going about their day when the blasts began. 
А на ялинки какие у вас цены? CNN senior international correspondent Will Ripley takes a look now at the damage done across the country. Without warning, a massive Russian missile attack targeting cities across Ukraine on Friday. The military says around 40 of those missiles aimed at the capital, Kyiv, forcing thousands underground, subway stations becoming temporary bomb shelters, train service suspended for hours. Scores of students like Katya had to miss school. I sit here about three hours. I want to go home. Ukraine says air defense shot down most of the missiles, but not all. Several deafening explosions shook the country. The strikes killing at least three in central Ukraine, terrifying people near the points of impact. Thermal and hydroelectric power plants and substations taking direct hits, triggering an energy emergency with widespread blackouts. Ukraine's president says all their targets today are civilian, mainly energy and heat supply facilities. As a result of this war, the meaning of the word terror for most people will be associated with the crazy actions of Russia. Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv, also plunged into darkness. No light, no heat, no water, even no way to cook. Many forced to brave freezing temperatures just to line up for a warm meal. People need to be fed, she says. We're cooking on a wood stove. Ukraine's military monitored Russian jets above Belarus during the strikes. Moscow and Minsk staging joint military drills in recent days. Kyiv is warning of a possible attack from the north. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko announcing his friend and ally, Russian President Vladimir Putin, will be in Minsk on Monday. Two strong men strengthening their alliance. We will never be enemies of Russia. We will never look disapprovingly at Russia, he says. If it were otherwise, we would be like Ukraine. Obedience in Belarus, resistance in Ukraine. This democracy under siege, defying danger with a smile. I had this surreal moment at our hotel in Kyiv this morning, Jake. Uh, I'm having breakfast. The Christmas music is playing. Then you hear an explosion outside. Then the lights go out. And yet people who worked there, who have lived through this war, just kept doing their jobs, kept literally putting one step in front of the other. That was the story in Kyiv, despite the explosions and the fear and 40 missiles being aimed at that city. As for this meeting in Belarus between Putin and Lukashenko, they're watching it very closely here in Ukraine because they suspect these two might be plotting something early next year. And, you know, they said to The Economist, a possible ground uh, attempt to take Kyiv yet again. Could that be misinformation deliberately directed to throw off the other side like the Russians have done time and time again, the Ukrainians too? Or do they really believe that some new terrifying next phase of this war is coming in the coming months, Jay. Yeah, the haversack ruse. Will Ripley in Odessa, Ukraine. Thanks so much. Today, President Biden says he is nearing his decision on whether to send the Patriot defensive missile system to Ukraine. It comes after Russia has threatened the U.S. with consequences if the missiles are sent. I'd like to bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon. Oren, when are we expecting to hear this decision being made officially from the White House? And, and could the recent barrage of Russian attacks in Ukraine be related to any sort of impending U.S. announcement? 
Jake, it's our understanding from having spoken to our contacts here that the expectation for the U.S. announcement of Patriots heading to Ukraine should come sometime within the coming days, perhaps next week at this point. But the process is in motion. Crucially, it is a process, one that runs through the Pentagon and then to the White House. It'll have to get signed off here, then there. And as it works through this process, it simply takes time. But there's an absolute understanding of the urgency to get air defense systems and Patriot missiles over to Ukraine as quickly as possible and make sure they get trained up. And that in and of itself will be its own process because these are complex systems with dozens of soldiers needed to operate them. And that in and of itself will take time for that training to work its way through. We have seen the Russians use the delivery of American systems as an excuse to launch barrages right before the NASAMs were sent over, Russia launching its own barrage back then. And that prompted the U.S. to send NASAMs over even faster or try to accelerate that process in any way it could. And perhaps that's what we're seeing here now. Russia using the delivery of Patriots as an excuse to launch another attack against key civilian and energy infrastructure. Whether that bears out, we'll find out. But for the U.S., it's another reason why these systems are so critical to the defense of Ukraine. Jake. All right, Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Steve Hall. He's the former CIA chief of Russia operations. Steve, Russia is obviously ramping up attacks on civilian infrastructure in Ukraine using strategic bombers. Is this a sign you think that Russia is now entering this new wave of more ferocious attacks? Well, Jake, I'm, an, I'm not actually sure that it's that different. Uh, it might be different on some days quantitatively in terms of how many missiles come crashing down on, on civilian infrastructure uh, in Ukraine. But I think it's, it's part of a larger piece that really is the only piece that Putin is left with. And that is, you know, if you can't win with your forces on the ground, if you can't figure out how to get your military, uh, your, your infantry guys and your tanker guys to talk to each other and have successful operations that way, then what you're left with is launching a whole bunch of stuff in the air which is not particularly, these are not smart bombs. These are just landing wherever they want, except for the ones that they're targeting their, 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 their civilian infrastructure and their, and their energy infrastructure. So I think this is just kind of more of the same uh, from, from Putin. And I think we're going to continue to see this really for the foreseeable future. So Ukraine's prime minister said today that Russians have set a goal, as you noted, with the infrastructure targeting to leave Ukrainians, quote, without power, heat and light. Uh, we, we've been reporting on how Ukrainians have partly been so successful in this war because of their willpower to win, but if the country doesn't have power in much of the population centers throughout the, the cold Eastern European winters, that could really impact Ukrainians' ability to fight. Well, it's certainly going to impact these civilians, and that's where it's really hard. I mean, you've got, yes, there will be some hardening of the will and so forth because they're being attacked. But, I mean, let's face it, if you're a family in, in Kiev or in, a, in, a, in another part of Ukraine, you know, you've got a hard winter ahead of you. It's a different story, I think, a bit with regard to the military on the ground. I think they're better prepared for it. Uh, but really what this all begs the question is, is how do you get it to stop? And this is why I think uh, we have reporting on the White House saying, look, what we really need to concentrate on if we're talking about helping the Ukrainians is air defense systems and Patriot missiles and other types of weapons like that. So I think that's why we're having that discussion right now. So Russia issued the warning that if Washington gives Patriot missile defense systems to Ukraine, there would be, quote, unpredictable consequences. Yesterday, I asked Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton about that. He had just returned from Ukraine uh, and I asked him about the, you know, what is really behind Putin's threat. I want you to take a listen to what he told me. Putin is a dangerous person. He's a dangerous autocratic leader, but a lot, he's a lot of bluster. He's a lot of bluster and he will back down. Remember his terrible threats. Uh, if more countries join NATO, two countries did and nothing happened. 
his terrible threats if, if America provided any support to Ukraine whatsoever. Instead, he's now losing this war. So we've got to not be cowed by Putin. Do you agree with the assessment that a lot of the threats from Putin are just bluster? So this is a really tough one, Jake. Um, yes, I agree with the assessment that, that Putin understands that, for example, when he engages in nuclear saber rattling, which he seems to be doing again, this catches the attention of, of the West and its leadership, as well it should, because you can't be a responsible Western leader and just say, ah, the heck with those nukes, you know, it's not going to be a problem. Uh, so th- there's that angle to it. But, you know, by the same token, we also have to say, look, look how the, the Russian military has underperformed. You know, can they even reasonably pull together some sort of significant threat to the West, whether it's nuclear or otherwise? And then, of course, counter to that, it only takes one, right? I mean, so if he fails and he launches 100 missiles, nuclear weapons, either at Ukraine or the United States, only one really has to get through to, to, to make a significant impact. So although I agree we can't just bow before Putin's bluster, it would also be irresponsible for Western leaders, in my view, simply to blow it off and say, nah, I'm not worried about it in no way, shape or form. You got to take a nuclear threat seriously, even if you think it might be a bluff. Steve Hall, thanks so much for your expertise. As always, appreciate it. Coming up, Elon Musk is learning firsthand about the complicated balancing act of free speech and content moderation after suspending some journalists' accounts. Why did he do so? Does he have justification? Then new charges filed in the deadly mass shooting at a 4th of July parade in a Chicago suburb. This time, the accused gunman's father is involved. Elon Musk is learning firsthand the difficulties of content moderation. A month ago, the billionaire tweeted, quote, my commitment to free speech extends even to not banning the account following my plane even though that is a direct personal safety risk. But on Wednesday, he changed his mind and blocked the, quote, Elon Jet Twitter account, apparently due to safety concerns about his family, tweeting any account doxing real-time location info of anyone will be suspended as it is a physical safety violation. This includes posting links to sites with real-time location info, unquote. And apparently that included even journalists writing about this very story, such as CNN's Donny O'Sullivan. Musk has inaccurately claimed that all of the journalists suspended were sharing his private jet's live location, saying that those reports amounted to, as he called it, quote, assassination coordinates. That's just not true. CNN's Tom Foreman takes a look now at the suspensions of journalists trying to cover Twitter's seemingly mercurial owner. Everyone's going to be treated the same. They're not special because you're a journalist. Elon Musk is on defense over Twitter's sudden banning of several high-profile tech journalists, including some at the Washington Post, New York Times, and CNN, claiming they violated Twitter policy by sharing information about an online account tracking his private plane using publicly available information, what he calls assassination coordinates. Musk says that is the same as doxing, the practice of targeting someone by publicly sharing their address and other private information. You dox, you get suspended. End of story. But for others, Musk's actions show something else. I think this is really about Elon Musk having very thin skin. And he does not like when people are aggressively reporting on him or his companies. And he doesn't like when people are very sharp in their criticism of him. And if you look at the group of people who were banned, 
All of them had that in common. The new Twitter boss has posed as a champion of free speech, lifting a ban imposed on former President Donald Trump after the January 6th riots, freeing the account of Congress member Marjorie Taylor Greene, which had been frozen over coronavirus misinformation. Musk even tweeted just over a month ago, my commitment to free speech extends even to not banning the account following my plane, even though that is a direct personal safety risk. But now, that account has been banned too. It seems like he is um, making personal decisions and making abrupt changes in a way that is quite new and unusual. I think the actions we've seen from Elon Musk are extremely disturbing. Without doubt, the sharing of private information about public figures can be dangerous. And Musk recently tweeted that a man had confronted a vehicle carrying his son. But... Instead of going to the police, what he did was publish a picture of that individual and asked his 120 million followers to identify them. And he included the license plate in that video as well. We asked Elon Musk Twitter for any comment on this. We have nothing yet. We do know this, though. The European Union has taken notice of what he's doing here. And an official with the EU has issued a bit of a warning saying, hey, you know, we have rules about that over here. And if you take action against journalists as you did there... We may take actions against you and Twitter. Jake? All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Let's talk about this with CNN correspondent Donny O'Sullivan. Donny, let's start with your suspension. CNN has reached out to Twitter to find out what's going on, what you violated. Has CNN or you heard back from Twitter about why your account was suspended? Uh, no, we haven't. We've only seen the, the uh, public statements from Musk. Uh, if I open my Twitter app right now, I see a page that says you are uh, permanently suspended from the platform. Um, but Musk over the past uh, 24 hours or so has suggested that that might be reduced down to seven days. We're, we're just not quite sure yet at the moment. So, but just to be clear, you didn't post where his plane was. No. You didn't link to where the Elon Jet account was on some other website. Mm-hmm. You just reported on the fact that it existed and was, re- was out there existing somewhere else. Yeah. In fact, a few minutes before the suspension, I reported last night on how Musk had shut down uh, the Twitter account of an emerging platform called Mastodon, which is kind of quickly emerging as a Twitter competitor. Earlier in the day, they had posted that the Elon Jet account was still on their platform. That's what that got them suspended and seemingly uh, is the justification, the bogus justification uh, that Twitter has for uh, suspending me. And he's falsely out there saying that he only suspended people who, who were providing direct coordinates or linking to direct coordinates of where the plane was. And you didn't do that. No, it's just absolutely not true. Back in April, Elon Musk laid out this vision of free speech on Twitter, quote, well, I think it's very important for that it be an inclusive arena for free speech. Is someone you don't like allowed to say something you don't like? And if they are, then we have free speech. Um, Musk seems to be kind of doing the opposite of that. Look, yeah, I mean, this is a guy, right, who is uh, presenting himself as a free speech absolutist. Uh, Look, we all know the First Amendment uh, does not apply uh, to Twitter, Okay, even though some Republicans, some of Musk's uh, supporters would like to think the spirit uh, of of the uh, of the First Amendment applies. Um, He can do whatever he wants on the platform. He can shut down me. He could shut down the president, as the former management did under obviously different circumstances. Um, But ultimately, he is trying to present himself as this person uh, who is uh, all for free speech and shutting down journalists, all that happened just to cover you critically but fairly 
Um, I mean, it's no coincidence. Yeah, I just, I mean, just trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, he says, oh, Elon Jet, I'm even going to let them exist. And then there's this incident where some, some person seems to threaten his son or th- thinks that Elon's in the car, but it's actually his son's in the car. And Elon, you know, Musk reacts. And I understand that. Certainly we don't want our, our uh, threats to our family. But then what he did to you and some of these other journalists, you weren't even linking to where the plane was. I mean, that's what's so bizarre about this. He just doesn't even want coverage of this. Yeah, and look, I mean, precisely. I mean, if if I had a private jet, um, I wouldn't love the idea of somebody uh, posting this live on the kind of platform of where the plane is taking off and landing. But ultimately, that is publicly available information. And again, if you're the guy, and by the way, just a month ago, he tweeted about this account and he said, um, you know, I'm so much for free speech. I'm going to leave this account on the platform. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tony O'Sullivan, thank you so much. Okay. And, and now you can catch up on uh, season two of White Lotus, I understand. <laughs> exactly. You're not on Twitter anymore. <laughs> We're learning That's more details about what criminal charges against Donald Trump the January 6th committee may recommend. That's coming up. As Republicans prepare to take control of the House of Representatives with their slim, albeit a majority, the White House clearly not a haven of Republicans, is zeroing in on a new strategy on how they might be able to still get some of their agenda passed. CNN's Phil Manningly is at the White House. Phil, what, what is the Biden administration thinking? You know, Jake, look, partisan warfare is a certainty. Republicans have been very clear that on investigations, on big spending negotiations, even on the debt limit, they plan to fight tooth and nail. However, when you talk to White House officials who are eyeing the new House Republican conference, they see potential opportunities, primarily through the lens of a handful of Republicans who really gave the House Republicans the majority. Republicans in places like New York, where they knocked off Democrats in seats that President Biden actually won, districts that President Biden would have won in 2020. That creates some opportunities, particularly going into an election year, which all House members are facing, particularly because they feel like those members of Congress will feel like they need to deliver. Now, they won't be able to obviously control the House floor. That will be whoever the Speaker of the House may be, but they feel like there are opportunities to find issues, maybe not big, wide-ranging issues, but elements on certain issues, uh, perhaps like uh, addiction issues, on veterans' issues, things like that, where they can actually make some progress forward. However, when you talk to officials, they acknowledge it is still early stage. There's a lot to play out here going forward. They're making clear, though, that they want to know what these members uh, are interested in, what they need to deliver on, and what they're looking for. And they expect the president in the early stages of that next Congress to make contact to see where they can make some progress, Jake. All right, Phil Manley, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss former Democratic Congressman Joe Kennedy and Charles Blaine. He's president of Urban Reform Institute, Congressman Kennedy. So you just heard Phil uh, reporting on the White House's new strategy, trying to look at what Republicans might be willing to work across the aisle uh, do you think it will work? Are there enough Republicans there? And will the speaker, whoever that is, uh, allow that to happen? So, Jake, the only thing I'd say, it's not really a new strategy for the White House, right? Because the White House has actually been marked by some of their biggest successes have been marked by that bipartisan cooperation. Yes. We're having, off, wait, some, we're some having audio problems with you. Oh, wait, never mind. Go ahead. Start, start, start again. We couldn't hear you at, this, at the top there. No, sorry about that. Can you hear me now? Yep. Hopefully. Um, 
the um, what I was saying was that this was actually been the hallmark of a Biden administration is working across the aisle, trying to find uh, ways to, to work with Republicans, knowing that some of those bigger legislative achievements, whether that was the infrastructure package, whether it was success on gun legislation, whether it was gay marriage, um, that it happened. It has happened with Republicans at the table, granted, with the White House and Democrats in both chambers leading that. But with that cooperation, I think what you're seeing is. A, a record of success when government actually works and when they can play to the needs of the people. And what they're doing now is challenging Republicans to say, hey, you want to you want to work with us? You've got a willing partner and the American public knows it. Time to deliver. Charles, what do you think? President Biden campaigned on his ability to work across the aisle with Republicans. Um, a lot of his big achievements have been without much, if any, Republican support. But but Congressman Kennedy's right that some of the big things like uh, infrastructure, and uh, the, the bill to help veterans who suffered from burn, burn pits have uh, passed with Republican support. Do you think there will be a willingness to do that among a Republican House? I think to a limited extent. I mean, you're right. Biden did campaign on, on his ability to reach across the aisle. But the Biden that was campaigning then is very different than what we've seen over the past few years. We've seen Republicans consistently vilified over the past few years. I can't imagine that they're going to go into this Congress ready and willing to to, uni, uh, to just uni, unify with uh, Democrats. And not to mention these that did flip some of these Biden districts, they were sent there to be an effective counterbalance. That's what those voters were saying. And so they would be wise to not just acquiesce to what Democrats want, but to push forward and, and stand true to what they campaigned on. So we'll see about bipartisanship, but it's certainly not the same Biden that we had four years ago, five years ago, and, and further back. Congressman Kennedy, CNN has confirmed that the January 6th committee is considering asking the Justice Department, they're going to vote on Monday, uh, on whether to pursue multiple charges against Donald Trump, including obstruction of an official proceeding on January 6th and conspiracy to defraud the federal government. Um, you're a former attorney, or maybe you're still licensed. I don't know. What do you make of these possible charges? Uh, I think uh, I don't want to get too far in front of the committee here, but I think what you heard was uh, hour after hour of testimony, uh, thousands of pages of evidence, um, what, reporting what the public saw happen and transpire in front of them, which was a sitting president of the United States incited a mob with the direct intent to obstruct the certification of an election and the transition of power. Like, full stop, period. That was the stated objective. And I think that part is is pretty darn clear. I think you then have to say, well, if it's that clear, do we say that we all are actually equal under the law? Or do we say that because he was a sitting president, we're no longer going to prosecute? I applaud the uh, committee for going as deep as they have on this. And I expect that there'll be uh, a full and transparent discussion as to what that vote is and, and why and, and specific um, elements that they uh, seek to uh, to put forward to obviously uh, substantiate the crime. So and I think it's there. Charles, uh, even if one uh, assume let's let's assume just for the sake of argument that they do bring these charges, uh, refer the charges to the Justice Department, um, such a, a prosecution would be unprecedented. The counter argument is so is January 6th. That was also unprecedented. What do you think? Do you think if there is evidence that Donald Trump committed crimes that the Justice Department, whether through the special counsel or in any other way, should prosecute him? I mean, if there's evidence, I mean, let's let the process play out. We know that the January 6th committee wanted to see this from the beginning. I understand that everybody says that they wanted to just find the facts and sort through it all. But there was clear intention at the start of this on what they wanted the outcome to be. And so now we're going to let them wait and see what the DOJ does. And yes, I mean, just like anyone else in this country, if, if laws were broken, 
prosecution should be is warranted and should come full stop. But we have to let the, the process play out. But I, I'm not going to say that we didn't see this coming. We we heard it through the intention of the January 6th committee, the comments they made in public um, throughout the hearings. We saw this coming. And so it's not a, it's not completely a surprise. So, Congressman Kennedy, black voter turnout was down in the midterms. Democratic strategists are, pa- are panicked uh, that, that black turnout being lower and actually Republicans doing better with Latinos and Asian Americans and black Americans uh, could hurt the party in 2024. How concerned are you? Look, I, 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 Jake, as the adage goes, there's two ways to run for office, right? Unopposed and scared. And the fact is that anybody running for office has to make that decision as to are we doing enough for our constituents across the board? And the fact that there's real concern about whether a Democratic Party is responding to the needs of uh, Black Americans, of Hispanic Americans, of rural Americans, of folks outside major urban centers and outside the coast, good, right? We should have that pressure and we should be doing more because if you look at a map, Democrats haven't done so well. There's a couple success stories, but the reality is here that, that there certainly is more we can do. And so if there's a tension there and a concern that, that we're not doing as much as we should be, I, I applaud that and I to put the pressure on my former colleagues there and anybody that wants to run for office. As anybody that has knows, you got to go out there and make that case every single day, right? And I expect you're going to see more of that. And, and by the way, while there's certainly concern, right, it ended up turning out to be a, an election that most Democrats at a national level were actually pretty happy with the result. Charles, I saw a study that suggested that if Donald Trump was behind a candidate, it cost that candidate five percentage points at the polls. But if it was a Republican running without uh, the endorsement uh, and whiff of Donald Trump, uh, it was two, a, pl- a net plus two. Do you think it's time for the Republican Party to, to move past Donald Trump? You know, I think that comes up to each individual candidate. I think as a base, when you talk to Republican base voters, they are starting to see see the future and start seeing what the future looks like without him at the helm. And they are looking for candidates who represent their values and who aren't just out there parroting what his talking points were. And so I do think we're seeing seeing some change there. And, and the tide will continue to shift as we head into this next primary cycle. But just to kind of, you know, push back a little bit of, of what or actually agree with what Congressman Kennedy said, the Democrats have not done enough when it comes to black voters, their largest voting bloc. I mean, the message was way off this election cycle. Here in Texas, they failed to talk about the issues that were plaguing everybody from immigration to crime. They completely ignored them. There was no outrage. Democrats take black voters for granted and refuse to go out to their communities and continue to court those votes. And there's no representation in Texas. We did not have one statewide black candidate on the ballot. And so you did see a decrease in black turnout because of that. And I think Democrats are are missing an opportunity there. And Republicans are going to be primed to pick it up. Charles Blaine, thank you very much. And Congressman Kennedy, I understand from from reading news reports that you're under consideration to be the Biden administration's envoy to Northern Ireland. I also understand that you're not going to confirm or deny or break that news on my show right now. But if this is your last appearance on the show as a commentator, Godspeed and Merry Christmas and Merry Christmas to you as well, Charles. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Coming up, new charges filed in the 4th of July parade. Deadly mass shooting. The accused gunman's father has been arrested. Stay with us. And we have some breaking news in the National League. New charges just announced in the July 4th parade massacre just outside Chicago last summer. Today, prosecutors in Highland Springs arrested the father of the suspected gunman accused of opening fire in a holiday parade. 
and, and killing seven people. That's in uh, Highland Park, actually. CNN's Adrian Broadus is in the Chicago suburb uh, where the charges were just announced. Adrian, what are prosecutors saying about the father's role? Jake, the state's attorney, Eric Reinhardt, called the father criminally reckless. And now Robert Cremo Jr. faces seven counts of felony reckless conduct. This for the role the state's attorney says Cremo Jr. played, helping his son secure a firearm owner's ID. Here's more of what the state's attorney said just moments ago. Parents and guardians are in the best position to decide whether their teenagers should have a weapon. They are the first line of defense. In this case, the system failed when Robert Cremo Jr. sponsored his son. He knew what he knew, and he signed the form anyway. And George Gomez is the attorney representing Cremo Jr. Here's what he said in part via a statement saying this decision should alarm every single parent in the United States of America who, according to the Lake County state's attorney, knows exactly, and it appears he's being sarcastic here, what is going on with their 19-year-old adult children and can be held criminally liable for actions taken nearly three years later. If convicted on all charges, Robert Cremo Jr. faces a maximum prison sentence of three years. It is important to underscore Jake earlier today. He voluntarily turned himself in to the Highland Park Police Department. That bond hearing is set for tomorrow morning. Jake. All right, Adrian brought us in Highland Park. Thank you so much. Americans are sick of being sick. New numbers about the spread of the flu virus that could provide a little relief as another virus appears to be on the rise once again. Stay with us. In our health lead, the CDC says cases of the flu are showing signs of slowing down in some parts of the United States. And while the number of people hospitalized with the flu has declined slightly from last week, the overall rate at this point in the season is sadly higher than it's been in decades. Joining us now to discuss CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, is the flu season close to peaking or might it get even worse? I I don't think we can say right now. I mean, there's been this significant sort of frame shifting of cases of flu earlier. We're seeing them, uh, you know, uh, much earlier and sort of lots of cases. We are seeing a decline right now, but also keep in mind that the biggest week, uh, the highest week in terms of flu activity was the week right after Thanksgiving. People likely got together, uh, you know, and that's probably where a lot of the flu was exchanged. And that's when the numbers went up. So we'll see what happens after these holidays, Jake, I think. So it's a little early to tell. Numbers there look good. Hopefully they'll continue to go down. A new survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that more than a third of parents in the U.S. oppose public schools requiring their children to be vaccinated against the measles, mumps Mm. and rubella. Oppose it. How concerning is this, given that there's a trifecta of respiratory viruses going around right now? Well, I think it's concerning right now, and I think it's concerning sort of long term overall, just this sort of anti-science pushback, anti-vax, you know, movement. It's been there in the past. You know, we've been we reported on measles outbreaks before the pandemic. You may remember, Jake, and if you go back, I think 2018, 2019 time frame and say what percentage of parents were opposed at that point, it was around 23%. Um, and, and now a few years later, 2022, it's gone up, as you say, to more than a third. 
I should point out that, you know, if you look across the board at children vaccinations in the country, 90.8% uh, of children are vaccinated by age two. So the vast majority are being vaccinated. Obviously, there's mandates to attend school in various places. Um, all states have these sorts of mandates, but there's these exemptions. And I think you're probably going to see more and more challenges to these exemptions. It's too bad. I mean, these are totally preventable diseases we're talking about here. Measles, mumps, rubella. Uh, those are really effective vaccines. So hopefully, you know, we'll continue to have high vaccination rates against things that we can protect against so well. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. In our pop culture lead, spy thrillers usually feature a protagonist with a sixth sense for danger and finely tuned combat skills. Netflix's new show, The Recruit, is a little different. The new eight-episode series is out today, and it follows naive yet ambitious 24-year-old Owen Hendricks, played by Noah Centineo. Uh, Hendricks, uh, who just started his first job as a lawyer in the general counsel's office at the CIA, um, in addition to being a charming bumbler, what's interesting is that the series is premised on a, on a real and relatively obscure, at least publicly, phenomenon, gray mail. Gray mail is the term for the letters sent by former intelligence assets threatening to go public with state secrets unless the U.S. government helps them out. Who are you? I'm Owen Hendricks from the general counsel's office at the CIA. We got your letter. Took you long enough? Yeah, it's a busy place. You know that making threats against the agency is a crime, right? I know many things. More than you, that's for sure. So how long has it been, huh? A few weeks? You know how to use the copy machine yet? We're not here to talk about me. What happened to your hand? I closed it in a car door. Liar. I've pulled out enough fingernails to know what it looks like afterwards. You seem really proud of that. Shouldn't I be? Some of those nails were for the CIA. Creator, showrunner, and executive producer of The Recruit, Alexi Hawley, uh, joins us now. Alexi, thanks so much for joining us. You, you told me about this series a few months ago. We had dinner. I'd never heard the term gray mail before, but then I you know, Googled it. It pops up in our, in our culture every now and then when folks with access to secrets suddenly have charges mysteriously dropped in cases against them. When did you first hear about gray mail? Yeah, I mean, it first came to my attention when I sat down with Adam Soralski, who's an EP on the show, and also started his career uh, as a lawyer at the CIA, uh, recruited out of law school. And, you know, they call them the crazies because most of them are not actually from real assets with real, you know, um, intelligence information or classified information. There are people who are in jail for an assortment of things who claim they know about the JFK assassination or stuff like that. So the majority of them go nowhere, but every once in a while there's a real one. And as in this show, a former asset who used to be in the Russian mob in Belarus uh, has classified information that if got out would be uh, hugely detrimental to the country. One of the things that's also fun about The Recruit, I've seen two of the eight episodes and it's really fun, um, is that uh, you say, and I believe you, it's much closer to the real CIA than what you see in Jack Ryan or, or Born Identity. Um, what, what gave you the idea for this show, and, and how did you do research on the CIA? Well, one of, the, one of the most important sentences sort of ever said to me was by Adam at the very beginning of the process where he said that the CIA was not sexy, it was the post office with secrets, which I thought nobody's ever seen that version of the CIA on screen. 
the idea of it's at the at its heart the CIA is a bureaucracy. It's a government institution like any other. It just has higher stakes and more secrets. But at the end of the day, there's still lawyers, there's still HR departments, there's still all this sort of infrastructure of bureaucracy that actually makes some of this clandestine work fairly absurd. So I love the idea of a sort of a catch-22 world in which you have this young lawyer, you know, right out of law school, because, you know, most every spy thing you've ever seen has been about a 30 to 40 year old guy who's really good at his job, right? And so this idea of a 24-year-old who's got roommates, who's literally just passed the bar like five minutes ago, suddenly put in a world where it's full of secrets and hidden agendas, and he's just trying to figure out what's going on, sort of while running downhill as fast as he can, figuratively, it just seemed like a really fun setup for a show. Yeah, but not only that, one of the things that's so fun about the CIA that you present in, in, the, in the recruit is it's a really toxic work environment. Yes. Everybody's trying to yes. sabotage each other. Uh, people yeah. have panic attacks. Um, yeah. Also light moments, of course, uh, quippy office relationships and such. But I, I would imagine it's got to be fairly, I mean, I've worked in places, not CNN, where it was pretty, you know, pretty much of a shark tank. I got to yeah. believe that the CIA is actually like that. No, I mean, look, I think there's a lot of, because of all the hidden agendas and, and also because of the idea that there's a lot of stuff that you don't want to know about what your what your associate or your partner or your you know the other lawyers are doing there's a sense of you know trying to firewall yourself yourself against other people so yes there's a lot of cutthroat we sort of describe it as as a game of never ending musical chairs where the way you guarantee yourself a chair is to hamstring the guy next to you and so that's sort of the ethos of the people around him which obviously is what ultimately sends him to sort of team up not fully, but but kind of team up with this former asset because she knows things about the agency that nobody else is telling him. And ultimately, he feels like he needs her help to figure out what the hell's going on um, while he's trying to get her out of trouble. Another theme is uh, this this 24-year-old trying to prove himself, grappling with the intensity right. of his job while his roommates are trying to bring him down to earth. Um, right. why, uh, why focus on that specific stage in life, the transition from school to the workplace, the 24-year-olds? Well, you know, I think none of us could ever imagine being James Bond or Jason Bourne or Ethan Hunt, but we've all had first jobs. We've all had roommates. We've all had sort of a workplace environment that might not have been so healthy. And so it felt like it was a great way to enter a world that's fairly unimaginable to most of us and to make it really accessible. And also, you know, he's at an age where he's just he still doesn't even know who he is. So to put himself in a world where now he's trying to figure out how the world works and how the CIA works at the same time that he's still fairly dysfunctional, you know, relationship-wise or, or anything like that, just really seemed like something we hadn't really explored before. Yeah, also a good way to get my teenage daughter to watch casting that. Well, that doesn't hurt. Casting yes, exactly. that actor. <laughs> Alexi, it's a great show. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And you at home can watch all eight episodes of The Recruit. They have just dropped on Netflix today. Coming up on The Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer, new pictures released showing the first time Brittany Griner saw her wife after being freed from a Russian prison. Until Sunday, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper or tweet the show at the lead CNN. On Sunday, I'll see you on State of the Union. I'll be talking to Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher, Republican Senator Pat Toomey in an exit interview, and a Democratic member of the January 6th Committee, Congressman Adam Schiff at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. I'll see you then.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.